This episode is dedicated to Robert Stanard. Thank, Thank you, Robert! Thank you, Robert! Remember the good old 1980s When things were so uncomplicated I wish I could go back there again And everything could be the same I liked Thomas Dolby because I thought he was so different to myself. That's why I wanted to work with him, because he was a keyboard player. I imagined he'd be excellent with uh, new technology and um, arranging things, but I didn't really know. This was just the image I had of him. I didn't know, I didn't know much of his music even. Uh, but I met him and um, I was very impressed by him. He was very, he was very serious. And it was a revelation being in the studio. I'd never been in the studio with someone who uh, recorded things, little pieces of color. He'd use a piano for one section. Then he'd use a cello line. Then he'd have an acoustic guitar. And I thought, what is all this? This is just bits and pieces. And then it was only weeks and weeks later that I realized how he was building up a picture in layers. Whereas if I had been in the studio by myself, I would have had the piano start at the beginning of the song all the way through, the guitar starts at the beginning. So I, I, learned, I learned a lot. So we have a very close relationship. He's, 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 he's wonderful. This is Adiesography. Audio commentary. Dave McQueen. Prefab Sprout. Thomas Dolby and Martin McAloon. Welcome to Etisography in a very special episode, which, as the kids led in with, is dedicated to listener Robert Stannard. Apologies, Robert, if one of my kids mispronounced your surname. You know, it's very rare you get to do this in life. So to give a bit of context, Robert gave a very generous donation to keep the pod afloat. Thank you, sir. And after he said some lovely things, it added as a PS. Suggestion for a future podcast, Thomas Dolby doing an audio commentary on Steve McQueen. Which is kind of ironic, because about a year ago, I had done just that. I'd reached out to his PR people with an idea of doing an audio commentary for Steve McQueen. I didn't get a response, so I thought I'd try again. And I managed to get in contact with Thomas this time, and he was up for it great. And then he suggested Martin as well, which is even better. 
so without Robert this would not have happened certainly not this time so massive thanks Robert I hope you enjoy it and, and what an episode what a gift to talk about not just one of the best albums of the 80s uh, but in my opinion one of the best LPs of all time Stephen McQueen if you've not listened to an audio commentary episode hello uh, there's some conversation to set the scene then we'll have a countdown a three to one countdown to sync up and listen and at the very end of the episode like with the songs from the big chair one uh, there's some excess chat that didn't fit into the, the song limit uh, that will be right at the very end of the episode so you can check that out because nothing goes to waste at Atisography HQ so sit back sync up or just listen as an interview with producer Thomas Dolby and Sprout bassist Martin McAloon and maybe somebody else who pops up along the way for the lowdown on Steve McQueen this is the start of the interview how are you my friend doing all right I see you're touring let me tour I am yes I retweeted your tour dates oh fantastic so you're doing pre Sprite songs is that correct yeah I'm doing a whole host of them on two hours with. Have you worked out what your set list is going to be yet? I've got. I've I've played five gigs and I've done between twenty four and thirty eight songs. Twenty four songs takes about two hours. Thirty eight songs. I I alienated the whole bar. <laughs> but um, I've got it. I've got a um. I've got a possibility of anything up to fifty two. Fifty two oh, wow. to sixty. So I've got the yeah. I've got a set list that's enormous. So when you when you did the thirty eight song set, what was the last song you did? Oh, um, it was it was I was I was really at the point where they were going to get a thing and to pull me from the neck through. Um, I think I might have done Jordan. Oh, okay, the last one. song. Um, yeah, or Rebel Land, something like yes. that. It was along the lines of that. I don't honestly remember. They just egged me on to do more, and I kept going. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Was there anything unreleased that you included in your set list? Or was there potential for any unreleased stuff? Um. <laughs> There is potential for one or two things, probably two things, but I wouldn't say what there were. I've actually played in a song called Who Intrigues You Now? Yes. Which we were going to do in Jordan, the comeback. Yes, because that is online, because I've heard that song. It's one yeah, of that's the demo of it, yeah. But we, yeah. We, yeah, we started that with Thomas, but we, we, we didn't, we ran out of time and... I think the record company probably ran out of patience with us. Right. <laughs> they didn't ask for it. And it was, we, we actually got a band. We got other musicians in to play it. So we banned ourselves from playing it. Oh, right. So so we, like, got, it's 90, we got to 19 songs. That's kind of enough, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I really loved Who Intrigues You Now. So I can't, I've played it live. I have played it live. Remember that. Remember that I. First to kiss you on the mouth and Although we are not partners now At any time, should you forget I still remember how Who intrigues you So how are you, sir? Very good. Hello, Mark. Hello. <laughs> Long time. Thomas. <laughs> good to see you, bunny lad. Good to see you too. Are you guys up on football? Do you know? Um, New- Newcastle, uh, my son is. So, yeah. Why do you ask about the footy? You, you know Stan Collymore is? Yes. 
Yeah, he, he, he tweeted this week that um, Steve McQueen's his favourite album of all time. Oh, fantastic. I think he's also tweeted about the song Dublin as well from Protest Songs years ago. One of the reasons I, I was really keen for Mark to join in on this was that he would remember different things from me. Well, I, I, Thomas, I remember all of those stories in your autobiography as if it belonged to me. So <laughs> kind of, I thought to myself, if I ever need to write my autobiography, I'll just copy Thomas's. And <laughs> for, even for all of those tech things, I remember that, that. For me, the fascinating bit was the tech side of it, where you, where the music kind of section finished and the tech kind of side started. And I can remember all of that starting, and it was fascinating. Absolutely brilliant read because I, I just it was it was like I was back in LA forty years ago. <laughs> well, it's funny that Mark because some people tell me you know oh I loved it until you got to the Silicon Valley and then you no lost that me. was that was my favourite bit it was like I thought it was great good well that's that's nice Mark but I mean in Silicon Valley people said the opposite they said you know I, I skipped the first half of the book <laughs> <laughs> falls mad falls. So obviously the first point is the famous roundtable Radio 1 show you're on where you heard Don't Sing. Yeah. And then, Martin, when did you guys first think about having Thomas as producer? <laughs> okay, well, you've just named the very point where it was the it was the roundtable on Radio 1, and I'd be watching the television, but I'd have the radio to my head, so I'd listen to Kid Jensen, I'd listen to John Peel, I'd listen to everything, just to find, just to keep in tandem with what was happening in the in the world of our rivals, I suppose, and trying to get a head start in who who liked us and keeping up to date, basically. Uh, when Roundtable came on, I was listening avidly, and I I remember listening to Thomas. He was often on Kid Jensen's show at the weekend, and he'd be talking about wind power and all these things, and he'd have these it was like conceptual stuff that he'd be discussing as well as the music and it was all it was always interesting but when he stepped in and i think we got a real dousing off the panelists they didn't like what we were doing and thomas stepped in and said how much he loved the the songs and how much he loved the recording and thought they were all wrong and i kind of knew i just thought fantastic and i just i was listening in my room and i, I went and i told our party and we looked at each other and just thought we thought immediately we thought we we're looking for a keyboard player we were looking for somebody who could take the keyboards away from us our paddy learned all of the keyboard parts the swoon in a very short space of time he'd not been a keyboard player and he'd had to do right arrangements for these things remember them and try and do it on an instrument that he wasn't familiar with really he'd played a little bit of piano but he played in a very awkward three-fingered manner and it wasn't the three fingers you would use as a piano player so they're all the middle fingers are all close together and they'd all be spaced out and it was really clumsy but he clunked together a whole album with Swoon, uh, playing all of the parts, working them out in a very short space of time. So the, immediately when Thomas said he liked the stuff, our first thought was fantastic. He could take over and do all the keyboard parts. And then it was from there, it was just like, get him to produce us. That was kind of how it happened. I still, I can still remember standing in my room going, yeah, it, it, it was like we had the same eureka moment. This could solve our problems. <laughs> You know, we recorded Swoon at um, Palladium Studios just outside of Edinburgh, and we used the gear that they had. And he was a keyboard player, so he had some decent gear. And me, uh, our Paddy and Dave Brewers, who produced it, they also had the hands on, you know, some a JX3P. 
and some, some, you know, that would be about it, really. So, yeah, that's my memory of it. Getting the timeline right. So, you obviously, you recorded When Love Breaks Down first before you met up with Thomas. So, it, it, this would have been recorded at this point. Yes. Um, would it have been recorded at this point? No, it would have been, would have, Swoon would have just been released. So, this was when Swoon, um, it would have been a track from Swoon, either Don't Sing or something like that, probably the first track. So, at that point, we kind of, when when that was first played on Radio One, that was where we were thinking of Thomas. So it was very early days. So it would have probably I, I don't know whether when Love Breaks Down was was released at that point, but I it I always remember it as being earlier. Thomas might be more clued in on the timing of this. Yeah, I don't think when Love Breaks Down was out yet, Mark. I so I mean, the way I remembered it was like this: I, I got invited to go on Round Table, and um, it was close to christmas i think so some of the records that we were reviewing were you know alvin stardust's christmas record and things like that. <laughs> and what's wrong with that thomas so here's here's what happened so the guests on the show were murray wilson who was a lovely sort of 60s throwback pop singer with a with a beehive hairdo and you know she i think she'd had a hit already um so she was known And an up-and-coming BBC DJ called Steve Wright. <laughs> oh, God. And Steve Wright, I think, didn't have his own show yet, but he was just on the cusp of sort of breaking into Radio 1. Anyway, man, I've had another trauma today. Yeah. Beth, my wife, was on in my socks and yep. something terrible happened. W- what happened? She burnt my feet. <laughs> That's terrible. And I was the third reviewer. So they were being very complimentary to Alvin Stardust and, you know, the Wombles and various <laughs> songs that were on there. And one song after another came on and I felt like a real curmudgeon because they'd come to me and I go, nah, <laughs> don't really like that. Don't like that very much. So then this, this song by a band I've never heard of starts up and it's just acoustic guitar and this sort of wayward harmonica and incredible chords and the lyrics come on about a whiskey priest and you know chess pl- uh, oh, it's just insane you know completely out there and I loved it and I thought oh god these guys are going to trash it <laughs> you were right <laughs> It got, it got to the end, and, and sure enough, they sort of said, well, not very commercial, doesn't really have a chorus, you know. Um, I think somebody said it's a bit negative to put out a pop song called Don't Sing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it came to me, and I perked up, and I said all sorts of lovely things about it. Um, and um, the next thing I knew, um, Keith Armstrong, the Sprouts manager, had contacted me and said, you know, yeah, I was talking to the band, and... Um, you know, they wondered if if you're up for playing some keyboards or doing some production with us or whatever. And and they invited me up to concert to meet with Paddy and Mart um, and listen to some demos. And did that include Snowy Rancid Dog? 
I, it, it may well have done. Uh, if, it, if it was, that would be that would have been the first time that I rejected it. Both <laughs> <laughs> seven times. But there's a bit of um, contention about how many songs he actually played you because uh, read interviews with you with about forty songs. I was at uh, least forty. Yeah, you reckon because yeah. there's an interview with him. He says, "Oh, there are only fifteen or sixteen I played to him." So that's not true. Oh no, he. I I definitely listened to it at least 40 songs maybe more so so here's what i remember so i i get to you know a hillside um out in concert and everybody was incredibly welcoming and friendly and after a cup of tea and probably a bacon sandwich or something um i was shown up to paddy's bedroom which was not much bigger than his single bed and as i recall his bed was sort of a mattress on top of stacks of lyrics <laughs> <laughs> of everything he'd ever written and he, Paddy pulled out an acoustic and it was only me and him in there at that point there wasn't really room for anybody else and he, he perched on his bed and he'd pull out a stack of lyrics and he'd sort of brush his hair back and his lyrics had chords written over the top of the lyrics and so he would strum a bit you know on whatever chord was written and then he'd sing his lyric and he'd sort of move on to the next line and and um i mean it was absolutely astonishing and it was you know gave me chills to hear these wonderful songs in this sort of intimate setting but one of the first things i noticed was that Addy would sort of he'd strum until he felt it was a good time to sing his next line and then he'd sing his next line and if that meant playing five bars or seven <laughs> bars of guitar or if it meant, you know, adding in a, a three-beat bar or a five-beat bar, then, you know, he, he would just do what whatever was necessary to get through to the next line. The, the other thing was that he'd quite often not be quite sure what octave he was going to sing a song in, you know. So sometimes he'd play it and he'd he stop and start again. So oh, maybe I'll sing it high, Thomas. And sometimes in the middle of a song, he would jump octaves, you know. So he, he had the melody in his head, but for it would feel like it was going a bit low. So he suddenly leap up an octave and, and he sort of said, Oh, I'm sorry, Thomas, I should probably, you know, pick, you know, what do you think? Should I sing it high or low? And I said, I love the random element of you just jumping around in the, in the songs. And I mean, the very first thing you hear on Steve McQueen, you know, is exactly that. He starts high antiques. And then he goes, every other thing. You know? <laughs> so, um, he was doing that all the time, and I, I always loved that about Paddy, that there was no sort of fixed way of playing his songs. It was just each take was, you know, as it came out. That's that's great. When you were doing that upstairs, I remember what I was listening to downstairs. <laughs> oh, I was to Schoenberg's Verkleten Act. <laughs> I can see it clear as day. It's great. Did you and Paddy talk before Thomas turned up about, okay, how are you going to pitch it to him? Like... No, I don't, this I don't, song or... no, we'd already succeeded in getting them there. There was no need to pitch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it could have gone horribly wrong. <laughs> oh, I know that. <laughs> Do you remember which was the first song that grabbed you when you were singing the songs? Is there one in particular that thought, wow, this is, this is the guy, yeah? Bonnie. Yeah, I mean, start to finish, I mean, Bonnie was somehow, you know, the essence of that album. <laughs> and, and of those 40 songs... Are there any that have never been released that you think he should definitely have released? Or have they all ended up on later albums? Um, no, but I re can I just say, Thomas, I remember you particularly loving a song called Bizarre. Can you remember that? Yes. But it would have been, you, we tried to, we tried routining that beforehand. You were particularly enthralled by that song as well. And we never got around to doing it. 
and we kind of just kind of fell off the list of things to do. But you used to go, used to really like doing that one. As I recall, Mark, that the songs that we actually recorded were more or less the short list that I made sort of on the train, you know, on a notepad driving, going back to London um, after that day. Uh, The one exception I can remember is that uh, we're sort of jumping ahead a bit. Alleluia was not on that list. Right. Uh, And I think that got added in just because you guys were jamming on it in the studio. uh, And I said, oh, this sounds really good. You know, let's, let's do it. (laughs) So you used to have that tape. What, the, the tape of the demos? Yeah, the 40 tracks on it. Uh, possibly. Possibly. <laughs> or, or, or it could be lost in the sands of time, like uh, like tears in rain. Tears in rain. <laughs> I cut that bit of speech in right there. Time to die. So, okay, so from that point on, you've, you've decided it's going to happen. You've, you've, on the train, you've selected your 10 to 12 tracks. You're going to um, routine and, and, and I guess rehearse. And then what was the next stage? And when did that happen? I think we probably got together in London in a rehearsal room, didn't we? Yeah, we were in the one that was Normus. Oh, yeah, Normus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was around Kensington, where, so yeah. Yeah, it'll have been that. And we routined there for a good while, didn't we? A good few weeks or. We did, because I'd never seen the band play live, you know, and lots of these songs, you guys have been playing them, some of them for years, right? Um, That's right. But then again, so Neil, Neil only started with us in that period of time as well, so Neil would have been brand new to us on in that year as well. Right. And, and you know, it was interesting to me because, like, hearing the songs played by the band, some things worked incredibly well and other things didn't and i think you know going back to this thing of the the five beat bars and everything i felt like my main task was to sort of structure you know structure the songs a little bit more symmetrically and um figure out where there should be fills and cymbal crashes and where you could use an extra couple of bars of instrumental or whatever so it it was like sort of reteaching the songs to the band i mean i didn't i didn't change anything musically so to speak of, I mean, I added keyboard parts and things, but well, the, the basic I would, sound. I would, say, I would say that you did some great structural arrangements, in particular with Appetite. I think because because some of the songs we, like you say, some of those songs had been around when we were doing soon. So, um, Farron Young, Bonnie, and Johnny Johnny would have been there. They would have been songs that we didn't choose for swoon that got rejected from swoon but you chose for these ones and breathed life into them but we played them as a band pretty much every day of our lives for years whereas things like appetite it was modern and newly written hallelujah i remember you stretching repeating a little phrase in that you you repeated the phrase and it got us to repeat it so you were you very much structured some of those things but appetite was definitely one where i couldn't have played the bass if it wasn't for you Hey, Mark, Mark, I'm really sorry. I just have to interrupt this program. There's an intruder in my house. I bet there is. <laughs> she looks awfully familiar. It's Wendy Smith. Oh, hello. Hi. <laughs> hello, Wendy. Hello. It's lovely to meet you. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well. I just happened to be about five doors down from Thomas's house. <laughs> Did you know what he was doing right now? Did he invite you in? <laughs> no, she, she just sort of wandered in off the beach. <laughs> <laughs> how are you wendy how's life life is really good i'm really well thank you i am actually on holiday at the moment um but it's great to be here 
Oh, wonderful. They, wonderful. they, they all live in a producer's street. And you've got <laughs> Bono and you've got Eno and you've got anybody with an O at the end of the name parked <laughs> on the same street. It's like Stella Street. Smitho. <laughs> Your, your, your timing is perfect, actually. You were at the stage of the story where you probably enter for the Steve McQueen album. So so during the rehearsal period, were you around for that, Wendy? For the rehearsal of the Steve McQueen? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because, um, yeah, I joined the band when I was 16. And I think I was about, I can't remember, I can't do the maths. But yes, I was there for the rehearsals and um, all through the recording. So in terms of you and... And Martin, working out your parts at this stage, how would it work? Would you just play live and then just just work it out? Would it be a more kind of methodical process? We would play live and work things out and Paddy would kind of pre-prepare vocal parts. But actually, the main thing that happened with the vocals was in production with Thomas. So, you know, Thomas played a huge role in constructing really complex, amazing vocal parts and harmonies for the for the album. And also using the Fairlight, you know, sam- sampling vocal sounds and using those vocal sounds instrumentally. So so your parts mainly done as like overdubs as opposed to playing live with the band? Yes, that's right. Yes. Well, I don't think that's entirely fair because in reality, I think Wendy's vocal parts were very intrinsic to Paddy's uh, compositions. I mean, I remember those sheets of lyrics. You had your own versions with the notes written over the top yeah. and you used to have a little Casio That's and right. in the studio you'd go off into a corner and work out your part before you sang it. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> you know, I mean, Wendy, you know, I, I remember thinking, you know, in rehearsals that it, it's so rare that there is a new vocal sound. You know, it's like you talk about the sound of, I don't know, the Beach Boys, the Beatles, whatever, whoever it is. It's so rare that there's a new sound. But the fact that Paddy's sort of harmonic, I'm getting a bit technical here, but his, his harmonic sensibility was so odd to begin with in terms of extended chords and accidental notes and so on. The harmonies that he wrote for Wendy were also very oblique. And that's what I sort of loved about them. And also loved the fact that, you know, Wendy has a very pure, very accurate voice was like a sort of a, it was like a frame for Paddy's emotional delivery on on his voice. He is a very warm sort of human voice. And, and Wendy just created this sort of mat behind it, you know, with, with her voice. So to me, that that was already there before I, I worked with the band at all. And then in the studio, it was a case, well, how do you get this down on tape, you know, and how do you how do you create the perspective, you know, the, the right perspective of, of, you know, the mix and the, the, the effects and the, the EQ on the, on the voices. And, and, and that was an experimental thing that I think evolved in the studio. Yeah. I was going to say, and I would have said this before Wendy appeared, um, but the, the, when his voice is like the, to me, it's like the magical element of Prefab Sprout. Does that make sense? I, I, mean, I would not- agree with you, Mark. I would agree. I think the one, the thing that separates Wendy from all other vocalists, really, I think there's probably a few that are like this, but she doesn't use vibrato and she hits the note and she'll hold the note. And most, most people have a, have a tremor in their voices, a, a, a vibrato that they, they utilize to do things with that. If, if you just want to hit the pure note, Wendy avoids a vibrato. When she has to, and she did it throughout our, all of the albums, she'd, she'd, and that made it very unique, but also it made it, um, very effective when you layered that up against other notes in the, in the scale. And I think it, it took me a while to figure that out, really, to get my head around that, because, I, you know, 
as Wendy said, we did her vocals as overdubs in the studio. So we already had a lead vocal at that point. And I remember when, you know, one of the first times that Wendy went out to sing her own parts and I sort of probably put it up at equal volume with Paddy's and listened to them together. And at, at first it didn't seem to gel very well because Paddy was so expressive and, and Wendy, as you say, Mark, was, you know, so, sort of so pure. And I remember hitting, hitting the button in, on the desk after a take and saying, you know, Wendy, that, that sounded lovely, but um, we try one, at, one more with a bit more expression. And there was sort of this silence. <laughs> and then back comes, Thomas, I don't sing with expression. I just sing notes. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which was a, a deliberate choice. And I think that also we were very lucky in that, Myself and Paddy's voices blended so well together, almost like two two parts of one voice. And the first thing that I sang on with the Sprouts was when I was 16, we went into the Durham University recording studio and we sang a song called Cherry Tree. And the harmonies that Paddy and I sang were really complex, but I think that straight away there was the realisation that our voices were very complementary and that I could kind of blend my voice around and with Paddy's. But I can't touch up, I'm not the gardener, I'm not the gardener. I can't touch her, I'm not the gardener, I'm not the And also pick up these new, the the weird harmonies on Cherry Tree. It was um, the the harmonies within that track. I think it's online. I think you can find it somewhere. It's the the harmonies on the chorus are are very pure, but also very awkward. But mm -hmm. it works. It's a, it's a gorgeous thing when it works. And I'll ask you, Wendy, while you're here, actually, because there was an interview Paddy did in 1988, where he said in the beginning of 89, he was writing a solo single for Wendy. Do you remember that? And um, was that going to happen? Yeah, he, he, he did. He wrote a song called Meet the New Mozart. Um, and we did do the, a kind of demo version of that and try that out in different ways. Uh, but we didn't release it as a single or record it as a kind of um, an album track. What was the reason why it didn't happen? Was it just didn't sound right or i think it was just yeah i don't think that we kind of particularly loved it in the end and so we didn't release it okay I think um, it, was slated, it was slated for um jordan to come back as one of the demos for that along with who intrigues you now um and then i think we tried to do it on it might have even been put forward for thomas at some point i don't know and he's probably rejected it um but i think it i think it's included on let's change the world with music yes, yes it is yeah. But, yeah. um but even then that was a completely a different arrangement to how it was when it was first done for jordan i think i think it was there in jordan but i don't think we used it The bad 
So we've gone from rehearsals to the actual recording. So do you remember the first day of recording, what the first track was you attempted? No, I don't. You know, so here's the thing. So we went to this beautiful recording studio uh, in West London called Marcus Music. And um, it was during an era when there were a lot of engineer producers around, you know, sort of Steve Lillywhite types who would go into a studio and engineer it themselves or bring in their own engineer. So a lot of studios didn't really have house engineers. And, uh, but there was a, a, an assistant engineer in those days known as a tape op called Tim, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was his last name? No longer with us, but, um, I can't remember. Anyway, he's, he's this sort of sweet, goofy guy, a bit of a redhead. And, um, he set up. I can't remember what our plans were engineering wise, but he just really impressed us early on with the, you know, the setup uh, for all the miking up and all the rest of it. And um, we decided to have him engineer the album. And it was, I think, the first major project he'd ever done. He just did a fantastic job. And, and the thing is, the thing about production is that when you have great songs and great arrangements, you know, you mic stuff up and you get a good sound on it and it more or less produces itself. You know, everything just slots into place. And um, that's what really happened. So, I, I mean, in terms of what we recorded first, we probably routined several songs in the studio during the process of getting a sound for the instruments. And after that, it was like, take your pick, you know, it's whatever vibe felt right. I mean, they're called tracking dates. When you have a band, you have multiple musicians in a studio. And it happens very rarely these days. But you can spend hours, you know, miking up the drum kit and doing everything you do to it and getting bass and guitar sounds. And it's all it's all very uninspiring. And then suddenly this window opens up and you're starting to play something and you think, oh, are we ready to go into record? You know, are the heads clean? Can you clean the heads? Have we got fresh tape on the machine? Because within the next hour or two, going to be some magic going to happen. And you just have to be ready for that. You know, the studio has to be invisible at that point and you just have to be ready to go. So, you know, you would do a couple and go out and get something to eat and come back and try and get a couple more. And it was, you know, by the end of the evening, it sort of turned into a performance and it had a real vibe to it. But a lot of the day you're, you're sort of sitting around and it's not all that exciting. It was Tim Hunt was the engineer. Got it. Okay. Okay. I think we're set up for the album now. Um, I just need to go and get my earbuds or else I haven't brought them with me. So you guys are organised and I'm not. So if you guys want to have a conversation between yourselves about the biggest argument you had in the studio, okay, <laughs> while I go and get them, then when I'm editing, it'll be new to me. It'd be great. So I'm like, oh, I didn't hear this bit. So I can like, enjoy it, yeah? Okay, so you, you, you carry on discussing the biggest argument you had in the studio. Argument would be about pizza. <laughs> <laughs> like who's getting the biggest piece? No, I don't think there was any arguments, was there, Thomas? Uh, can we eat curry like four nights in a row? And for breakfast. <laughs> for breakfast. I, I do remember that. Um, can you remember who was next door at the time? No. Well, in Marcus Music. No. Who was Peter who Frampton? Who? Peter Frampton was recording next Peter? door. Really? Yeah. And I, pl- I was, we were pl- me and Neil would play pool against them. <laughs> or with them, rather, rather than against them. But yeah, we'd play pool together. Amazing. <laughs> You've got such a good memory, Mart. And and just and just down the corridor was it um oh, from uh, Mute Records. Daniel Miller. Daniel Miller was there with Mute Records with um yeah Depeche Mode lot the lads. And maybe that was the first time I met him because I ended up working with him a little bit. Right. 
uh, at Marcus. I don't remember any any arguments really. I mean, I remember being rather amazed that you know I would make suggestions and you lot would just go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think that that's a, a lot of that's to do with you. You had a vision of wanting to do those songs, whereas we'd already rejected some of them from Swoon. And I think that our vision was not to record those for Swoon. So you coming along and saying I have a vision for this was like great. It's like we we will just we'll do whatever because your vision is better than ours specifically for uh, Farron Young, Johnny Johnny, Bonnie, those things, and then and then you took the other ones and really did something special with Appetite and you know, things like uh, yeah. Can I just ask who rejected Goodbye Lucille for Swoon? We we'll have we'll have been bored with playing it live. With we've, we've we've played it live since I was probably fifteen or sixteen. It's, it's literally one of the best songs ever written. But like, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's not something to say. Not to be mad. You can't not have that on your first album. But, but we we played it for years in pubs <laughs> and whatever. And and when we got the opportunity to record an album, we thought this might be the only album we're going to make. So let's do the new stuff, which the is stuff, more, more yeah. better than the old stuff. So we went in and did that and didn't think about, didn't didn't think we were missing a trick there at all. That was one of the first songs I ever heard Prefab Sprout play when I used to come to see you at the Brewer's Arms in Durham and you were wearing Wellies March. I can remember that. <laughs> on stage and I think I think it actually made your own paper microphone but you were completely brilliant and that was one of the first songs I heard you play and the 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 wiring on the guitar was knackered and I'd almost electrocuted myself so therefore the wellies and <laughs> as well as I'd come from working in the garage with me overalls on so yes so there was a point where I didn't want to get a shock so I wore <laughs> Can't the logic there. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Okay. Audio commentary. Steve McQueen. Side one. Three, two, one. Play. Track one is Farron Young. So antiques. Whose idea was it to start the album with antiques? <laughs> You know, I think we always saw this as an opening song, but I think the first time Paddy ever sang it up high like that, it was sort of as a joke. And I thought, okay, well, that's a keeper for sure. <laughs> I think that the first word, antiques, was a, it was a word that uh, Paddy had asked Mick Salmon, give me a word I want to, to start a song with. And he just randomly said antiques. So uh, Mick Salmon was our original drummer. I'm loving the uh, Fairlight banjo there, Thomas. Oh, Fairlight banjo. I'd forgotten that, yeah. So, so um, you know, the Fairlight, just to explain, was like a, a this expensive instrument that uh, I think it, it cost £80,000. <laughs> and with the 20000 I had left over from my first advance, I bought a flat in Fulham. <laughs> so I guess you have a sense of, you know, you can now probably get a Fairlight app that does more than that. Anyway, it, it could one of the things it could play because it didn't have very much memory in it. It could play banjo, so um, I played little banjo part on this. So, was this always the opening track of the album? Oh, I don't know. I don't think we'd be thinking those terms. And Mark, did you guys like Four in the Morning, or did you hate it? Um, it was kind of living in the village we were from. The um, Four in the Morning and Once More the Dawning just woke up the warning in me. By um, by Farron Young was kind of everything that you didn't want to do, really. 
everything that you you kind of yeah it had nothing to do, really to do with your lives just like cliches and stuff like that so it was yeah it wasn't wasn't big on our agenda although now um now it's uh possibly more and you've got your um can i just say that um is thomas's fairlight we'd been playing before we played this song we were playing um we'd been jamming to uh, frankie goes to hollywood i can imagine a lawsuit coming our way mark no, 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 no. It was it was purely you were you were we were taking we were playing that. Um we we were playing something like two tribes and you started to go digga 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 dig dung and it's a laugh. And we, we kind of then when we started to play this, you kind of incorporated it as a laugh and uh it became part of it. It was yeah, it was a fair like sound that was just there and you just kind of did that for the laugh. It's very moody, that breakdown, isn't it? It's like, it's got an incredible mood, this song. Like, the sunset makes a fence out of the forest is is sort of the, like, the, that's the line that goes with the visual that I have for this song. Right. But it's yeah. a weird structure because yeah. the song is effectively over at the halfway point. You've had all the lyrics and it's all outro for the second half of the song. So w- was that a deliberate thing to, to stretch out the running time or was it always meant to be that way? Ah... <sighs> hard to say really i mean you know what one thing is that a record company if they'd been around they probably wouldn't have let us get away with that because they would have said oh no you've got to you know we had this a&r man at, uh, you know it wasn't even sony then what was who, who were they and when he would come down the studio he basically always said the same thing which is oh you've got to get your hook you know up front and and then repeat it lots of times at the end <laughs> so I don't think he was allowed in the studio at this point or else he would have just come in and sort of said, well, you can't have that long outro. You've just got to get your hook out there. Track two is Bonnie. I remember the guitar and drums and bass were probably done together at the beginning, um, which would probably be the usual case and then we'd patch up bits and pieces that needed patching up. A sort of a rhythm guitar track, bass and drums. We'd probably just keep the bass and drums. Probably would definitely keep the drums. Bass might be redone, but I don't know whether it was with this, to be honest with you. I think it might have just been played. It, it's such a such a sort of gentle, thoughtful song. We were talking earlier about, you know, the way Paddy sort of played his own songs without the band and where he would just strum until it felt like a good time to sing. And then he'd sing his line and he'd go on. But... Of course, you know, when you're recording in the studio with a band, you have to be a bit more sort of structured about it. So you have to sort of pin it down to a particular structure. But it, it tells such a beautiful story. The way that it takes off into the chorus is fantastic. You know, it's just really sort of earth shattering, this song. And I think for many people, you know, they talk about Steve McQueen as an album, but I'm sure a lot of people have got Bonnie in their mind when they're, you know, when they're talking about that. And that guitar part in the chorus, the da 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 I remember that as being your suggestion to Paddy and explaining to him how to play it and the timing of it. I love your piano on this as well, at this, where it's coming here as well. So, Thomas, in terms of the parts that you play, um, would you be playing with the band and working out or would you have like the demos to work to, to decide what the keyboard parts were going to be? 
I think the piano, I think I played some piano on the backing track. I may have replaced it again afterwards. You know, it's really the blend of all of the tones in this tune that makes it work so well. It, it's not that it's the production, really. It's, it's the, the register of the instruments, the tone on them, and the way that they support and hold up the vocal is what really makes this song. When you came across a tone that worked with the backing track, you would utilize that and then build a part around that. And it would only be for three seconds or two seconds or less, occasionally longer. But then you'd go on to a different tone that would come in and blend with the previous tone and move on. So it was it was like piecing together little bits of jigsaw, but you, you the parts, the parts were reliant on the sound that you found. That's how I kind of imagine it in retrospect. Yeah, like sort of painting, just sort of dashes of colour. That's the one. It, it, I mean, what, what's sort of unusual, I think, about this album is that we did have a version of the songs that we could play straight through. But then the overdub process, you know, we managed somehow to not screw that up. <laughs> Very often, you know, that a lot of the signature of 80s music was suddenly had all these tracks you could play with and people overloaded them with you know everything and the kitchen sink and we somehow managed to just know when to stop and I, and I think that was a collective thing you know we're always all in the control room together and and there was everybody had input and there was always a sense of you know you try things out and oh, that's a bit too much you know so there was a sort of delicacy and, and respect for the the composition itself you know, and to me, the fact that you guys had had these songs knocking around for years, and in some cases you'd sort of moved on from them and filed them away, meant that the process of recording them was slightly at arm's length, almost like we we're doing covers of, of somebody else's song. You know, there's a certain distance from them, but a respect for them, you know, to leave them, to leave well enough alone and do just enough to put them in the right light. Track three, Appetite. You know, I think of No Miss Rehearsal Studios when I think of this, because as Mark pointed out, I think we did a lot of work on this at No Miss, figuring out the structure. Yeah. And, and, and also that, you know, the verse groove between yes. the, the, you know, the bass riff and the, and the drums was, was really special. Was, I mean, did that come about in rehearsal? Had you always yeah, played it, it did. that way, Mark? it did. The re it was the groove was sort of a rehearsal-based thing. And, you know... Just the syncopation of the bass against the drums, you, you, your involvement was in that was immense. For everything that I played that you liked, you'd figure out a way for me to remember it by using lines, rhythms of words that I would have to almost say as I played to make myself remember the rhythm of the piece. And there was always, there was always one particular line, which was, I'm in with the in crowd, which comes along. I can't I can't figure it out whilst I'm listening to it at the same time. I'd have a whole bunch of lines that I would say to myself as I played, just to remember what we decided on. And we couldn't we couldn't afford an orchestra, <laughs> but so we've got the Fairlight sort of pretending to be a, a whole string section, which was not really what people use Fairlights for in those days. They tend to use them for like sheep spying and things like that, <laughs> breaking glass. <laughs> <laughs> I think also this is one of the tracks where rather than singing, um, kind of overdubbing the singing and the harmonies, that you use the fair light for the backing vocals. 
and and actually I think there's uh, some vocal samples in the keyboard sound. Yeah. But I really like that the way sometimes we would kind of sing the overdubs, the the harmonies, and sometimes we would use the bare light for that. Um, I think it's really beautiful sounding. So would you sing a note and then use that in the fair light as like a keyboard? Is that the idea? Yeah, so sometimes we could just do it with a note or you might do it with a selection of words on on particular pitches. Um, so if it's, you know, something in the chorus, then we would choose that sing the lyrics and Thomas would sample it. But if it's a kind of keyboard pad of vocal sounds behind it, we might do an octave or a couple of octaves of, of samples of just vowel sounds. I remember the demo of this, our Paddy doing this, it would have been one of the first demos he did. You came across a random sequence on the GX3P, which you had very little control over. I think he'd hit some notes and it generated a, a sequence. It's like the sequence that's playing in the background. The it was so random that you kind of, you pared it down without, you reinvented the sequence but you pared it down so it was doing similar to what he was doing, but it was more structured. And Appetite was a single, right? Yeah, with a video as well. The video we filmed on a boat, if I remember rightly, marked. It was the um, the tuxedo, on the tuxedo princess. On the, on the banks of the tide. And, and I think that was the era of the crazy moustache in Paddy's um, kind of fashion sense. Oh, the porn star moustache, yeah. Yeah. Track for when love breaks down, quite a classic. So, so Martin and Wendy, obviously, this is produced originally by Phil Thornley. If you can give us an idea of what it was like, the thing that I remember most strongly working with Phil Thornley was creating the vocal sound behind the track, which wasn't Fairlight. We actually recorded tape loops of a couple of octaves of my voice singing oohs and ahs, different vowel sounds. It took a very long time. It was a really detailed process. And then we actually played the vocal sound on the mixing desk. So it wasn't played on as a sample or on a keyboard. We actually mixed it on the mixing de desk to kind of fit behind the song. So like I'm not in love then, the same kind of thing, like it's an instrument, yes, I think. exactly yeah. that, exactly yeah. that. And in terms of working with Phil against working with Thomas, what was the main difference? You thought he was Phil Spector in every way, shape and form. Every way? Every way. He's pulling your leg, Mark. Okay. <laughs> was he not open to suggestions and was there no back and forth or...? Yeah, he had an attitude problem. Wendy, would you agree with that? I can't remember his attitude problem, but I don't have a good memory of that. I do have a good memory of kind of having completed that song and it being really iconic and then working alongside Thomas to remix it and make it sound different. Because I suppose the key thing for us with this track is how are we going to make a track that wasn't produced by Thomas fit into the rest of the album? How are we going to make it sound like it's part of the album, like it's in the same sound world? And I think that's a really tricky thing to do and something that Thomas did really skillfully. The comparison would be Thomas is a member of the Sprouts and that was the dream team in terms of Sprout production. So in a way, there's no comparison because the best team was the team that was led by Thomas's production. Thomas had Paddy re-record the vocal for the album version. So he did it in a 
I think it's a, a, a lighter, higher octave and range. I remember the day. I remember we, we didn't have much time to do this, to record it. I think we might have only had a day to go in. We'd, we finished the album, but we were going back. We'd set aside some time to come back into the studio, um, and we, we only had a day, but we were stuck most of that day in an airport in Newcastle with snow on the ground, and I think Jules Holland was on the same flight trying to get home from an episode of The Tube, um, and we got to the studio. It was like probably 12 hours after we were meant to get there. It was a late call, and redid the vocals and then mixed it all in a very short space of time. So it was, Thomas was up against it in terms of time in the studio for that. That's what I remember about Thomas's version of it. And Thomas in terms of mixing it, so it, it did align with all the other tracks. My memory of it was that the record company really wanted When Love Breaks Down on the Steve McQueen album. And I was fine with another producer's work being on the album, but I just felt that it was going to stick out like a sore thumb sonically just because it was recorded you know in such a different way in a different studio and so on i didn't want it didn't want the album to sound like it had a, a hit single just sort of inserted into it so I, I said look we need to do enough to make it coherent with the rest of the, of the album i think maybe when we completed it and the record company sort of said we'd still like to go with phil's version because we think it's sort of more radio friendly i maybe felt a little bit slighted by that but the end of the day, it, it didn't really matter. I mean, what was important was that people needed to know about this album. And so the more success you could have with a single, the better. And if the record company were willing to get behind, you know, Phil's version of, of the song, then I, I was absolutely fine with that. But I, I don't, I mean, I didn't fundamentally change it really. We just pushed up the, you know, the tracks. A lot of the things, you know, that Wendy was describing, you know, the effects with the vocal and stuff, they were recorded like that. It wasn't like we had to recreate these very, care, you know, intricate moves with faders and knobs. Phil had sensibly bounced stuff down, what you would now call stems, you know, of the vocal with all of the effects on them. So it wasn't that hard to, to get the sound back to where Phil's was and then just mixing it our way with Mike Shipley and so on, it naturally ended up fitting in sonically a lot better with the rest of the tracks. Track five, Goodbye Lucille, number one. The song was pretty much as it was when we played live, but we used to play this at a very, very fast, almost punk-ish thrash. So it was, it was, so this is once again a paired back and relaxed version. I remember Muff Winwood coming down to the studio and saying, um, I love that Johnny Johnny song. <laughs> and Paddy saying, it's actually not called <laughs> it's actually called Goodbye Lucille Number One, and this turned into one of the biggest fights, actually, you know, on the on the album, which was that uh, you know Muff several times came back and sort of said, "Listen, lads, you know, kids are going to go into WH Smith and ask for the Johnny Johnny song. <laughs> it's got to be called Johnny Johnny. You can't it, you can't call it good, Goodbye Lucille Number One. It's not even in the lyrics." He said, <laughs> "Always contrary." But was there ever a version with Johnny Johnny in the title? The single was called Johnny Johnny when it's released. Probably at some point, I don't know. Okay, so if you if you had the seven inch vinyl version, it said Johnny Johnny. Johnny, not Johnny okay. yeah, not really. No. Okay. <laughs> I always remember you. Oh well, I remember the night of the getting the screen coming up. Turn back the clock. I love what Wendy does on that. That turn back the clock at the background and the scream. So, Wendy, would you ever record your vocals with Paddy or would it always be separate? Usually separate, yeah. I would say most times we would record separately. 
And, you know, we, we had different ways of recording the vocals. So Paddy would sing his vocals and do several versions of them. And then we would piece the vocals together, even Paddy's lead vocal, to get the exact right version that we wanted to have. So it was a very detailed process so that, you know, he might not always sing a vocal in one take. It might be pieced together from six different takes. Um, and then we would build up the backing vocals around that. It's fabulous guitar work on this song. I mean, you know, Paddy is one of those singers that you don't talk about his guitar playing, but in isolation, it's just so amazing. Yeah, you know, I mean, David Byrne is another where sometimes songwriters sort of play what's necessary to support their vocal. And, and so they play different things from what a, a, a guitarist would do. But the guitar and the guitar sounds on this are really amazing. Is it true that this is written as a do-what parody in Walt's time? The first time I ever heard that song was Paddy was sat at the piano and he had my younger brother, Michael, and two or three of his friends. And they were about three years, three or four years younger than me. And they were stood around the piano all singing Johnny Johnny as Paddy was playing it. And I remember him playing it as a waltz. So it was, ooh, Johnny, 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 there is the time for tears. Ooh, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny. There. So I remember that. And then we played it as a band, just straight ahead rock, like punkish version, which was up-tempo along with Bonnie. That was up-tempo as well. So, yeah, so it, so that was the first I heard it was, it was there. Now, it might, I think it was a waltz, but... I don't know whether that was just on the day I walked into the studio and it was just a throwaway kind of laugh with the lads doing it like that. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I have to tell you something funny about yeah. this. So when when I was, oh God, I sound like a name drop. When Kevin and Armstrong and I were rehearsing with David Bowie for Live Aid, yeah. <laughs> Kevin had given Bowie, Steve McQueen, in order to persuade Bowie that I should be the sort of keyboard player and music director for Live Aid for his performance at Live Aid. And we were actually, this is back in Nomis Studios again. Kevin goes to Bowie, oh, did you listen to that prefab Sprout tape that I gave you? Bowie said, yeah. Kevin said, did you like it? And Bowie thought about it and he said, I really like No You Won't. <laughs> and, and the way he said it, it sounded, I mean, because that would actually be quite a feasible prefab Sprout song title. And I can remember Kevin looking very perplexed and thinking, No You Won't, is that, is that like a B-side or something? And Bowie was talking about, no! at the end of the last chorus and that was the piece of the album that he really loved track six hallelujah yeah so i did hear Paddy play this in his bedroom and i didn't go for it i'm not quite sure why now because it's one of my favorites from this album now but i mean i do remember that that we weren't planning on recording it but we'd set up you know, the drums and everything in the studio and the band just sort of started playing it. And I think it, it took off for me when we added Wendy's vocal to the sort of chord sequence at the beginning, you know, with the, the ooze following that melody. Cause I'm not sure if that melody, that melody was sort of suggested in the chords, but I don't know if Paddy ever sang it as an ooze. So I think picking out the melody from the chord sequence was what was what really made it. Mark, where does Paddy get these these chords from? I mean, there's something very sort of mid-20th century, almost Broadway-ish about all the passing chords, the diminished chords. You know, every little bit of the melody is voiced with a different chord, and, and that's not done much in pop music. Where did that come from? I mean, where did Paddy get that? Well, I think it's just about supporting the, the melody 
I think all those chords are there structurally to support the melody. I don't know whether we, we, I don't think we, we were always curious about new chords, but we didn't know what they were called. So I, I still wouldn't know what half of these chords are called, but I can play them all. It would just be a, an instinctual thing that you, you're searching for something that really supports it, not just pretends to support it. You, you, you take the time to look for something that, is precise in the same way that his lyrics are precise. He doesn't just settle for something that kind of works. He goes for something that that's faultless, and he's just he just applies the same amount of dedication to the chordal melodic structure, the harmonic structure, as he does to the lyric selection. But where it comes from, we were just always interested as kids. We always listening to new stuff. Always listening to other things, Stravinsky, Schoenberg, all kinds of stuff, but at the same time, jazz, all the things like Hall and Oates and, and Genesis and Steely Dan and, um, um, and things like musicals as well, Mark, like yeah, um, Stephen Sondheim. Stephen Sondheim, but Richard Rogers and um, all those kind of classic songwriters. The the Ella Fitzgerald take on um, Rogers and Hammerstein or um, or Rogers and Hart with their uh, Bewitched, Bothered and Bewildered and just gorgeous tunes. Kevin Armstrong in here, by the way, one of Kevin's rare appearances on the album. You know, it could almost be too complicated. I mean, to me, this this song almost belongs with the Swoon sort of era. But much as I love Swoon, there there were times on Swoon when I just sort of felt it was too tricky to really relax to or swing to. You know, there's just moments when it's a bit too didactic, Swoon, some, sometimes. And, and I mean, I don't think that was the fault of the songs per se. I, I just think that, um, you know, I just really felt when, when I came in, I, I just needed to sort of somehow simplify and, and just smooth off some of the rough edges, you know, in the, in the song structure and things like that. And I, and I think Hallelujah just treads that line. It's just, it's really intriguing. It's harmonically surprising, but it's, it's, it ended up really gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going back to the spaces that you created that th- there were no spaces in Swoon, were there? It was all very frenetic and it for its, its plus points, but well, we had 24 tracks and we had to fill them. Yeah. I think this Hallelujah in my mind is similar to basketball in on Swoon in that, you know, it's, in basketball, it was so complicated, and I can't remember how many chords there are in it. Mark, you would probably know that, but I'm sure. for you if you want. <laughs> 54 chords at least. It's about that. It's about that. Chronologically, it probably does fall in time with the things that were recorded, were written round about the era of Swoon as well. Yeah. It would be slightly out, out of sorts with things like Bonnie. End of side one. Hey, Brian, 80sography is really good, isn't it? It sure is, Sarah. I love learning more about the music of the 80s. Yeah, we both like doing that so much, we started our own podcast about it. It's called the Permanent Record Podcast. Why don't you tell us more about it, Sarah? We select albums from the 80s that are important to us, and we cover the making of the record, chart history, and every track. Then we give a final review and rank the album on a scale of 1 to 100 record adapters. We've covered artists like Depeche, Erasure, Hojo, Aha, Tears for Fears, and the Pet Shop Boys, just to name a few. Also, we've interviewed classic acts like Men Without Hats and Information Society, along with great 80s-influenced modern bands. So how much would you pay for an awesome show like this, Sarah? Uh, nothing. It's a podcast. You can just get it for free in your podcast app of choice. That's true. Right, I'm back. Okay, excellent. Are you ready for side two? 
Ready for side two. Give me a second. Yeah, no worries. I've forgotten about sides. Size <laughs> <laughs> two. Three, two, one, play. Side two, track one, moving the river. Now, would any of you ever discuss with Paddy what the lyrics mean? Or would that not be important when it comes to making an album? No, we would not. never ask him to explain any of them, no. Yeah, I've, I've never discussed lyrics with Paddy. Or the only time we have discussed it is when I've notated the lyrics down, probably incorrectly, and then six months later he's realised that the lyrics have changed. Uh, but not not about what they mean. So, so Mark, I mean, I'm interested in this. Did did it, was there ever a point when you felt that it was sort of autobiographical in a way that affected you as a member of the family? It's always difficult to talk about these things because I know that I just rather not talk about because it's not about anything autobiographical, but. To comment either way it makes it sound like it is so, and it wouldn't. It wouldn't be. It would be. Yeah, I'm just digging a dig bigger hole by talking about it to be really So I'm going to back out of that. I mean, I think all all writers draw from real experience, but move into the realm of fiction. So you know, it's like when I think about Paddy's lyrics, I'm I'm assuming these are imaginary characters that have been influenced by people he knows or met in real life or whatever, but. You know, he's really a fiction writer to me. You know, it's like I always felt he was like a novelist as much as a songwriter. The one thing I would say was would be the money for jam line. It was it was somebody who would come into the garage for petrol who would say that. So I so little things like that, but it's it's money for jam, money for jam, John, money for jam was a guy who used to sell petrol too <laughs> every week. But there's also a huge cast of other musicians in Paddy's writing. Georgie Gershwin, Farron Young, Elvis. Yeah, you're um, right. Yeah, he likes those themes, doesn't he? Yeah, definitely. So it's not just about what's close at home, but also about, so about cultural I- iconic, iconic characters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like writing an album about Michael Jackson. Yeah. I remember meeting with with you guys in Camden Town to do an album, and, and I said to Paddy, "So you got this this album? What's the new album about?" And he said, "It's about death and Elvis." <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, moving the river. That was one you you played live a lot, right? I mean, it really sounds like a sort of pub classic. <laughs> <laughs> Probably at that point, no. Probably at that point would be a brand new one. I've got to say here that Neil played great throughout the whole album. I don't think we've mentioned Neil Conti, who played drums for us. And he was instrumental, literally instrumental in in sorting me out. I think Thomas as well had a lot to do with that. But yeah, I, I was always ahead of the beat and Neil was always at the back end of the beat. And uh, <laughs> there was no compromise. I just had to change. Love your piano playing here, Tom. Oh, cheers, mate. <laughs> well, I mean, I can remember saying, you know, one time after a, a take of a song, uh, all right, um, I think everybody will, will just take it up a couple of beats per minute. Mark, you can stay where you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, listen, I remember you saying the same thing to me around the microphone. 
in in oh when we were doing Langley Park to Memphis, and we were in the studio, um, Harold Faltermeyer and uh, Giorgio Moroder's studio, and we had to go next door to record some vocals as a as a as a chorus of singers, and. Um, he said, can everybody step closer to the microphone? Martin, can you step a bit further away? That's because your projection is so good, Mart. Exactly, Thomas. That's what I'm going to hear. I didn't really even need to mic you up. Exactly. You're so, this boy's so good, you don't need a microphone. I, I kind of wish I hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Track eight, Horsing Around. It sounds like it's going to be back in the USSR when it starts. And it hadn't really occurred to me till just now. Well, we I know we tried it. We tried it and we'd had a few goes at it. And then we went through, this is one where I think Thomas mentioned earlier on that we, we kind of did go for pizza and a bottle of wine or two and came back and then did it. And we were a lot looser. And my, me and Neil were having a laugh as we started to play it. So we'd been doing drums and bass probably with the other instruments in, but keeping the drums and bass. Um, and I know that my playing was kind of sloppy, but worked and Thomas really liked it. And I think it was because of the slight alcohol. Had yeah, I have a very strong memory of like taking a break and coming back. Yeah, and we, went, we went for uh-huh. pizza and, and wine. I think it would have been the time of, what was that, Beaujolais Nouveau? So it would have been the November-ish kind of era. Yeah. And and so here we've got the sort of bossa nova groove, which is very precise and careful. So where did the idea of the sort of swing rhythm thing come about? I think that was you. That was you. But you, you don't think that was you, you and Neil messing around with an alternative version of me sort of saying, let's let's use that for the middle I section. I don't know. I can't remember. I can't remember. But I, I kind of thought it was... It was your kind of you. You kind of liked that, but I could be wrong. I love how you built the middle of this. Wendy's vocals are great on as well. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome, Pam. So this middle section was that recorded separately? No, no. Played through in one, probably in one. It was a drunken take, and all of this layering, all the layering that that Thomas does all those little elements of keyboards that come in and then the swell of the the brass and, ah, wonderful. It's heavenly. He says of his own work. (laughs) No sense of pomposity. Luxurious. Very seamless transitions between the sections. Yeah. A middle name, Thomas. Seamless. (laughs) Jacko Macaloon on the harmonics <laughs> on the bass. <laughs> if only, Thomas, if only. So would this all have been worked out in rehearsal then before you recorded, or was this part of the recording process? I, I think we did work this out in rehearsal. I think this was a result of the drunken pizza night out. It was. It was that. So roughly how many takes would you do on average of each song? Not many. Half a dozen, maybe? Yeah. So we'd have done a few before, I'd, yeah, we'd have done a few s- quite stiff versions of it before we went for something to eat and have a drink. I'm not condoning drinking for recording. <laughs> it was just very useful in those days. 
and drink responsibly, Mart. You've made some great vocal samples on this recording, which some young band is going to take out of context and put over a dance groove or something. <laughs> I'm not condoning drinking. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, great reprise of the swing section at the end. It's a pretty good album, isn't it, Steve? It's, a, it's pretty good, isn't it? It is. I like all these, these sort of second slidey things as well. I think they're often overlooked. You're right, there's an abandon about the songs on side two, you know, because it's like we've already nailed it with the, you know, side one. So it's like there's nothing to lose. And, and oh, we just... Only, only it was that easy. Retrospect there. Track nine, Desire As. Thomas's opening chords, Budapest by Blimp. Yeah? Well, same keyboard, um, <laughs> similar chords... That Desire As came before Budapest by Blimp. I was saying, did you use these chords when you were doing Budapest by Blimp as your starting point? Uh, probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course I did. I mean, you hear the first two chords, both played on a PPG, Wave 2.4 or Wave 2.3 or something. Same preset on both. Right. <laughs> did he play this as one of the songs when he sat on his bed on guitar? Oh, that's a good question. I would say yes, and I, I can't imagine it sound made a lot of sense just with guitar and voice. But did he write it with a keyboard? I think, I think it, demo of a keyboard version. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I and think then, it was. He, it, I remember the demo really well. It was kind of layered with all of those different vocal lines. So I think actually he built it around the vocal lines more than anything. But it was definitely keyboard, not guitar. Actually, looking at my notes, it says Appetite and Desire were not played that day. So that was obviously later. So that makes sense. I remember really, really looking forward to recording this because it's one of my favourite songs and one of the favourite mm -hmm. kind of demos that Paddy did. I don't know what you would compare this song to, really. It, it's just, um, it, it's almost got a sort of a spiritual gospel kind of atmosphere to it, although it's not sung with any of those characteristics. No. I remember a moment when everybody we knew went into the kitchen to record vocals together, I think, for the end of the song. Far far, yeah, far from the eyes that, that ask me. Huh. I, of course, was excluded from that setup. <laughs> I mean, somebody had to man the desk. Yeah, I, I particularly love my bass playing and Neil's drumming on this track because we're not on it. <laughs> <laughs> I get to play piano, though. Actually, do I play bass on this? I do. I thought I didn't. I love this song. Ding, 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 ding. Thomas, you were saying about the fact that the songs on side two are looser. Was that because you always knew these were going to be side two songs? So you had a track listing in, in mind once you started recording? No, I don't, I don't think we really had a track listing in mind. You know, you try and balance everything out and make it nice, things run in together nicely. But at the end of the day, you know, I read some statistics that, you know, on a, a vinyl album, the first song is listened to on average 10 times as many as often as the last song, you know, because people just don't get through the album. And with CDs, that's even more true. So you, you basically need to put your best songs up front or the ones you think are the best. 
But everything else on side two has got a certain sort of looseness about it. But Desires is is really sort of pristine. You know, the, the title to me sounds like it's describing a, a a painting in a museum. You know, it's like you see a beautiful painting, you stare at it for a while, and you you get in close and you look at the title card and you go, "Oh, it's called Desire as a Self-Figured Creature Who Changes Her Mind." What a cool name for a painting! During the pandemic, I sang well spoke sang on a track that was created by LYR, Simon Armitage, um, his band with Richard Waters and Patrick Pearson. Um, and Simon wrote a song around that line that Thomas has just um, said. Um, and I had to, I recorded myself on video for the video of the song in my son's bedroom. And I have to say, I looked like a thousand year old serial killer in it. <laughs> <laughs> but they did manage to disguise that. And that was just a really lovely thing to do and a beautiful tribute to this song and to Paddy's songwriting, which I know Simon Armitage loves. What was that song called? It's called Winter Solstice. I love I love that track. Um, I remember you asked me to play the piano on it as well. And so I, I actually play the bass notes in it and um, get to put, I, I climbed inside the thing to do that big strum just towards the fade out where it sort of climaxes at one point and I do this, on the, the on the strings of the piano. You're performing this one live on your tour? Yes. With a grand piano, Mark? <laughs> no, just on, on, just on guitar. Are you doing all of the different vocal lines simultaneously? I'm doing them all. I'm going to do them all. I even do the <laughs> Like Jacob Collier. I've got a comb, a comb and a kazoo. No, if you were Jacob Collier, you would conduct the audience to sing all of the different lines. <laughs> oh, hell. I think it's enough that I conduct my own voice. Yeah. It's because the chordally, it's not so far, it's not far removed from a Nile Rogers chic type of song. Yeah, groove wise as well. <laughs> yeah. It's about how you swing it, Tom. <laughs> Mark, we have to zip through these last two songs because I'm expected at walking football. And I oh, no. Okay. <laughs> I've got to leave in 22 minutes. Okay, let's get to it and go to track 10, Blueberry Pies. Well, this is a lot of Thomas um, programming. He programmed the drums and the bass and virtually the whole thing. I mean, Paddy's guitar's in there and Wendy's singing. And, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's just painstakingly piecing the parts together, uh, which was, it's Thomas did. But what was the film we were watching, Mark? Can you remember? I can't remember when the film. But yeah, I can't remember it. I remember us being, we loved a song from a Marvin Gaye record, which was his last record that he released. And he introduces that record with them, where it speaks French. I can't remember what it's called. But there was something about the feel of that. And this is a completely different song. This is more... Well, I remember this song as being on the on the guitar, so it's far more for me. I remember it as a kind of almost like a Led Zeppelinish bluesy kind of um, since I've been loving you moody song, and so this has taken it into a more ethereal and uh, almost like a like what's that film, the Ridley Scott film, Blade Runner. Blade Runner. It's that for me. It's a Blade Runner or a um, or a. That Tom Cruise film where he's uh, has to remove his eyes. That one, that old chestnut. Minority Report. Minority Report. Do you know me and Tom Cruise are exactly the same age? 
Can you believe that? <laughs> he doesn't have my fucking knees. <laughs> we often get mistaken for each other. Especially now you've got a beard. That's the one. So, Thomas, you did a B-side called, I'm trying to, is it Raviva Fiore? How do you pronounce it? Fiore or? Yes. I recorded it originally. So I, I did a film score a year or so after this album uh, for Ken Russell called Gothic. And um, he wanted a song in it that was sort of nursery rhyme like. And um, I always liked that little, like little four bar section in the middle of this that that Wendy sings. And so, with Paddy's permission, I sort of took that melody and um, turned it into a song sung in Italian uh, called Raviva Fiori. Last track, When the Angels, right? A beat song about the death of Marvin Gaye. Similar sequence. In the background there, the which was um, which was uh, Thomas had redid what Paddy had done on the GX3P. So this would have been a, a demo that Paddy would have presented. I think like Appetite with from from this keyboard. He just got this keyboard. I, I'm remembering that great um, drumming on this again. You know, Neil's an amazingly tasteful drummer, and. Um, he made sense out of, you know, some of the odd structures and things, some of the odd beats in, in you know, that Paddy had done his songs originally and uh, always does a great job. And we didn't do anything special with the drum sound. We just mic'd him up and let Neil at it. But, you know, especially considering he's playing with a click, as they say, you know, because the Fairlight had to have something to sequence to. So it's very hard for a drummer to play like that. And he does a great job. Neil was always good at it. He, he wouldn't necessarily use a click. He'd, he'd actually build a little um, percussion part that would work, that, would, that wouldn't drag him or slow him down or speed him up, that would work, with, which would sit with the track and he'd play between it. So he was never really playing on a beat. He was playing through the beat of the, his little rhythm setup. It was always very good. And I think me and him, me and him will have done this in one or two. Perhaps it wasn't as few takes, but we'd have done it pretty much together. But there again, I could be completely wrong. And you've got your your um, all your little tricks in the Fairlight, the um, trombone, which was used in Hyperactive. One of the things I remember about the backing vocals is that I was really looking forward to singing the 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 angel, when the angels chorus and and the kind of the the way the backing vocals are in harmony. And in the recording process, I couldn't get them in tune. And I can remember in the way that you blame the instrument, saying to Thomas, it's the piano, Thomas, the piano is out of tune. And and saying that repeatedly, I'm absolutely sure it wasn't. And then so in the end, Thomas sampled the vocals a little bit like in Appetite. And so the, the, the backing vocals are actually sampled harmonies. And a lot of people wouldn't have stood for that, Wendy, would they? <laughs> There's many other vocalists I've worked with who would have stormed out. I'm sure I did my own fair share of quiet storming. <laughs> and Wendy, you singing the Bastards bit, was that always part of the arrangement? Yes, I think it was. Uh, and I think, I don't think Paddy particularly loved swearing, but I think that was a bit that we really enjoyed doing, or that I enjoyed doing, because I was allowed to swear. Yeah, I think Paddy saw the irony of dropping out for that word and letting the innocent, lovely Wendy sing it on her own. <laughs> I always love it when I get a solo moment, a rare solo moment. Do you only remember this as a recording silhouette, which is like your solo vocal, isn't it, the B-side? Yes, that's right. 
and then meet the new Mozart that was relegated to um, the bin. <laughs> is that, is that, I want to hear it. Is that ever going to come yeah. out? Yeah. Yeah, Wendy, I've got tons of bass solos like that as well. They got relegated. <laughs> you definitely don't want to hear it. Oh, yes, I do. So uh, at what point was, was it decided that when the Angels would close the album? Because it's a very upbeat end to the album. Oh, God knows. Um, I'm not sure, really. I mean, I think with the running order, I think, you know, in those days you would chop tape up and you'd try it this way, try it that way. You know, I'm sure we'd we'd sort of tell we'd give Mike Shipley like a running order on a scrap of paper and or go to the pub and come back and he'd have it done. Rather like when you recorded for Top of the Pops and, uh, you know, you'd set up for a session and the, the record company guy would take the BBC guy and the Musicians Union guy around the corner for a pub and they, <laughs> the pub would come back three quarters of an hour later after a few pints and the song was miraculously finished and there was this pristine tape sitting on the mixing desk. There we go, we're all done. And that's what they would use on top of the pops. And every, everybody everybody knew what was going on, but yeah. they went ahead anyway because people had to get paid for each usage of the song. Crazy. I, I remember spending hours and hours doing the running order for protest songs. Still in my head, I've got the running order of protest songs which was the album that followed Steve McQueen, but it, it goes to the record label and they have their own ideas. And so they they included tracks on it that weren't meant to be there. So so you you ended up with a you know a, a running order that fitted the time, the timing needs of each side rather than any aesthetic that you were trying to create. That is the end of Steve McQueen. And were there any um discussions about the title at what point does Steve McQueen become the title or were there any alternate I, I don't know whether Wendy can remember this but I remember going to the to a, for, a, for a curry in town uh, in Newcastle probably before we started recording it can you remember around the it was the Motty Mahal around oh, the, yeah. the, the Butt Moth Waterloo yes yeah and we went in there and I, I can remember who was sat at the table opposite us and it was Jeff Onefour and his wife, uh, uh, who, who she ran Yorkshire Television, and he was uh, one of the directors of the Tube. And they were sat there, and we went and was like, "Hi, Jeff. How are you? you know, hi, hi, Andrea. You know, no longer with us, a pair of them." But um, and then we sat down, and Paddy just said, "Yeah, I know. I'm going to call the next album Steve McQueen." And that was it. It was just like, "I know what I'm going to call it. It's going to be called Steve McQueen. Job's done." Jeff Wanforth was did our first kind of TV filming for the Tube, which was what was it, Marsh, that we sang? Don't sing. That's right. And he he then went on to do the Beatles anthology and all of those things with McCartney and yeah, just just every legend that you've ever kind of known. There were just everybody from the Tube. Basically, the Tube would have been around about the same time. So people like Malcolm Gary and um, Chris Cowie and Jeff Wanfor, they kind of became the Geordie Mafia of TV music. They were all of the good people, I think. And they were great, the great bunch. And it was, it was they kind of took over the world of um, of music television. It was all based from the, what they achieved in Newcastle with the Tube and the things that had come before it with Gina and things like that. The Eternal Jukebox. So what three tracks would you pick from Steve McQueen to keep for all eternity? Um... I would pick Snowy Runs and Dark Tom. Go on, see it. <laughs> That's the deluxe edition, isn't it? Bonus tracks. 
the reason I didn't like Snowy Likes a Dog was it sounds like the record is scratched. Because <laughs> there's a line, I can't think what the line is, but he goes, Did it, 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 I would pick exactly the same three tracks as Thomas. I'm going to go for the B-side. I'm going to go with Blueberry Pies, Desire As, and I'll leave a spare one just for how I feel on the day. Okay. Why Blueberry Pies? It's an interesting choice. What is it about that you like? It's a, it's a be- I, I love the lyric. I think the lyric is fantastic. I love the songs where there's, all, there's usually a song on every album where it, there's a kind of an overwroughtness in the lyric writing. It, it, he just allows it to flow and he lets the the lyric and the tune go where, like a ball of string. He just rolls it, lets it roll wherever it wants to go. And that's what he does with the chords. He builds the chord structure around where the melody and the lyric is going, regardless of any adhering to popular thought, where you have to be in 4-4 or whatever. He'll extend the lyric, he'll extend the beat, he'll extend everything about it. So that one hits that mark where it just goes off at a tangent and lyrically and musically. And I think Thomas did a great job sonically in in making it sound of the worldly. Is there an equivalent track for Langley Park that you'd, you'd say the same thing about? Um, yeah, um, I'd, okay, right. Um, lyrically, <laughs> I'd say the Venus of the Soup Kitchen itself, yes. I'd say that is, is, would be there. Um, and it, it, it starts off, pretty much straight when he's scared down and out all those bits but it goes off at tangents and uh and it finishes in a completely different place which is more broadway-ish it's a bit more like hallelujah but it's um yeah that one does that probably the other ones on there as well but i can't think and finally three words to describe how you feel about steve mcqueen ah uh, well i think when we finished steve mcqueen we could all just retire, right? <laughs> I think if, you, if you went to your grave having only made one album, then that would be the album. Our work here is done. Our work here is done. <laughs> yeah. Now a bit more chat with Martin. How often do you speak to Paddy? Because it was his birthday this week, wasn't it? I saw it was him. yesterday, yeah. I spoke, um, spoke to him yesterday and uh, was it was it a family funeral just last week? So yeah, I saw him recently as well. So yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, no, this is it's one of those things, isn't it? It's life yeah. and not life and all of that, really. Yeah. How's his health at the moment? Oh, fine. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah, just the same, really. He's looking good and just yeah, we're just yeah. we're fine. Okay. How many albums has he written this year? God knows. I know that he's yeah. <laughs> I know he's. I know he's. he's I know he's on with something else, but yeah. Is he, is he close to finishing anything? Because I know there's an interview in 2019 where he had an album product project he was expecting out that year. And of course yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, I don't want to give anything away here, but yeah, I think I think that that was very close to finish, but I think he started something else. Does he usually keep you in the loop of what he's working on there? Do you ever get I don't, to I don't demos? try not to bother him about it. I just, I just, no, I just ask if he's, if it's you know how he's getting on and how it's going and and he'll he'll tell me little bits and pieces but you you kind of you want him to, you want him to just get on and do what he's doing and then present you with it when he's at the point where he's happy to have you hear it 
he might not be finished at that point, but at least he's got an idea of what he's wanting to do and the direction it's going in. So there's a con it's a it's a proper plot rather than rather than just a bunch of ideas that don't add up in terms of how you explain it. So how many times has he done that in the last thirty years? Would you say he's presented a body of work that's not been um, released? Do you think that could well, have been an album? He did. He he presented. He, about about probably about time goes so quickly. About ten years ago, I remember it was um, he he presented us. He, he got me and my son, uh, my son Jonathan, and he got us both over there. And we went through. We spent two weeks working through an album of stuff, um, recording stuff, recording. We we just it was a one or two songs a day for two weeks, and there was about ten or twelve songs. I've never heard them since those days right those two weeks i only heard them in the room and we didn't listen back we just taped everything the discussions the re, the presenting of the rec the song and the arguments and discussions around how it should go going through it and he didn't yeah we just wanted to do something that was unproduced and more like how we were when we were 17 or 18 and my son at the time was that age kind of thing He'd have been guessing 18 or 19 or 20 or something like that, a bit older, but yeah, because he's a good guitar player and singer and he's got great harmonic sensibilities. So it was good to have him there. And I was just, my fingers were so arthritic and I just kind of laughed and took photographs of the pair of them. Right. <laughs> that was kind of my role. I, was, I just kind of thought, let them get on with it. And there was like big discussions between the pair of them about how it was going and and all of that, but the songs were fantastic. Some great songs on it. What was the name of this album project? Did it have a title or it was to do with animals? To do with animals. Okay, so there's a new one to add to the list. I, I keep a list of all the um, projects that he's talked about in interviews. Yeah, were, okay, yeah. animals. We're all and, and you, what was the best song? Remember? remember that oh he... God, I can't remember how any of them go, but I know there was there was a beautiful song, um, "Portrait of Pacini," and there was another one, but I can't remember. I can't remember what the other ones would be. There was loads of them, but I can't remember. There was about 10 or 12 of them. and I, But that's the only one that I think that was the title of it. And it was gorgeous, but I cannot remember anything of it. I think every fan dreams of it. There'll be a box set with like 180 tracks in it. It'll just suddenly come out. We keep, we keep dreaming, don't we? Oh, it would be great. I, I, yeah. you know, I, think, I think there's a there's lots of songs from the past that I, I don't remember either. I just remember the titles. And I'd love to hear them. And we, there's probably demos of them somewhere or live versions of them somewhere, but I would love to hear them. There's a song called Geography. There's a song called Dignity from 1980 before. Yeah, I remember playing it when the week John Lennon died. So it's, it's, and it's, I would love to hear that again. There's probably somebody with a tape somewhere of it. I would love to hear them because they were great and had one line, just little lines in it. That's all I can remember, little fragments of lines. Like Bells, her voice will always chime, sonorous and sublime. Yeah. That's a song called Dignity, and that's all I can remember of it. All, and that was from when Super Trooper was number one. <laughs> you remember that bit? Okay. <laughs> so I... I don't want to go on about it. It's, it's just one of those frustrations as a fan that you always want to write. <laughs> Tell songs. me about it. Yeah, <laughs> and, as, and as a bassist as well, I guess. But does he have these all recorded, or are they just written on a piece of paper with chord, so you, you know, the chords? Uh, he's, he's got a vast sort of archive of things. I think he puts everything down onto 
onto a format of some description and then puts it somewhere uh, or he'll do 10 versions of it whilst he's working on it uh, so yeah there's lots of stuff there and he's and he's always working on other things and uh, okay it's good to know so when it came to choosing which songs you're going to perform live yeah a how did you do it and what was the criteria for picking them was it just songs you liked songs I liked, songs that you kind of know that you can't go without. Mm. Um, so there was a lot of a lot of those songs from Steve McQueen and things like that where you just know that you're not going to be able to ignore them. But also that it was great to do things like lots of Swoon, at least yeah. three or four tracks from Swoon, um, things that were a bit more obscure like um, <sighs> Basketball, the song Basketball, if you were aware of that one from Swoon. Um, which is yeah. quite complicated. I'm not a singer, and I was never anywhere, let anywhere near a, a microphone, which Thomas will attest to when he's back. <laughs> um, uh, but um, yeah, I just I thought I'd do some songs that you you wouldn't expect a non-singer to sing. So I'm doing um, off Jordan. I'm doing things like um, the Never Sang Do Up in Harlem, which is a kind of a singery type of song. Um, and that's a hard one to sing, isn't it? Singers, uh, yeah, they're all hard to sing, but if you've got no voice, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> okay, the, the, the chords work, the chords are brilliant, structured things that I was I've kind of got them in my DNA. So, yeah, do any um, B sides at all? Any B sides, yeah. yeah. I'm doing a radio love from which was on Lions, which was our first single. I don't know what other B-sides we have. Um, I, I never know what was released as a single or as a B-side. Um, I'm trying to think what would There's be a B-side. Yearning or, Loins or Nero to Zero? Or no, I haven't done the Yearning Loins. Um, I haven't actually heard that in probably 40 years. Um, okay, fair enough. Nero to Zero, probably I haven't heard that in as long. Somebody did ask for that on Twitter, and I kind of laughed. Somebody also asked for... Um, what was the other one? Oh, Snowy Rents a Dog, which is one of Thomas's favourites. He's been... <laughs> yeah, I was going to get to that. Album. Yeah. Always turns it down, we just do it for the laugh. Uh, I'm trying to think what other things that would have been B-side-y type things. I can't remember. But if, if you mention them, I can confirm or deny. <laughs> Vendetta's no one I really like. Oh, God, right. Vendetta for the Countess. I've not heard that in a billion years. See, is that was that on something? That was a B side. I think it was Cars and Girls. That was a B side. Of. Really? Yeah. God knows. Just no idea. It's also long ago. So, so what was Snowy Rents the Dog? That's one of the ones that hasn't escaped online. So I've never. Well, heard. I thought that had been released. I, I don't think it's on YouTube. I've, I've certainly not heard it, and I've checked for what anything. Um, I, I find think it's on the. It might have gone out on the B side or something, or of a. I don't think it did. I'm pretty pretty up with everything that was released. But I haven't I haven't heard it in years. So are you playing that one live? No, I'm not at the moment. But I have been asked to, and I'm trying to narrow it down. 
And every day I wake up with a new one in my head. I woke up um, on Sunday think, trying to sing Elegance and trying to figure it out in my head, trying to figure out how you could do that. And the other one, and then when I went to try and listen to Elegance, I heard here on the Eerie and thought, oh, wow, I could do that as a waltz. Well, it is a waltz. Love becomes you a happy burden of a life stained neatly curtained. Recognize that it won't go away. Hearts grow numb and conscience weary. You should be here on the Eerie. Face yourself or give it away. Okay, I've got two more questions. One is, do you still have your gold disc, Steve McQueen? Um, my gold disc, I've, all, all my gold discs are in the loft of the house, in the attic. There isn't a loft or an attic. It's it's under the eaves, and it's they're covered. It's covered. They'll be rusted and covered in dirt. And I've never, I never take them out. I kind of see them. I, they don't bode well with me. I don't. I just see them as bad luck to be on show. In what sense? I don't know. I just had a weird, weird feeling about them. I kind of put them up there and they're covered in, they're covered in 35 years of muck because we've been living here for that long. Um, yeah. So they'll be ruined. Um, if you don't want them, like, I'll, I'll, I'll get a guy to come over and pick them up for you. If you want. <laughs> well, I'll pay for the person packaging if you want to send them to the Gloucestershire. I, I just, I just, I've just never, I've never, I've never liked having them around to be honest That's with you. interesting. You see them as bad luck. Yeah. That it, if I was to put them on the wall, it would something, something would come along to kick my ass. Okay, interesting. <laughs> and and final question would be: um, rank the Prefab Sprout eighties albums from least favorite to favorite. I can't, I can't because it's it's. Uh, I've got to be truthful here. It's the next album that thrills me. The albums that I recorded, I'm very proud of. And I never listen to them. I don't listen to the album. So it's today's swing, um, today, Steve McQueen's the first time I've listened to it in a good few years since the, since I had to listen to it for the repressing, which would be just before the pandemic. Um, swoon I listened to on Sunday because I woke up thinking of elegance and I wanted to hear how it went. So I put swoon on in the car, but I don't listen to the albums. I kind of, I live with the songs. The the albums are kind of like hard forks on the root of the song. And I'm lucky to have known the song before the album. So the song the albums exist, but I've kind of also got the, the publishing side of it where you can go down and just take the song as it stands so so I can, you know, pick up and play Blueberry Pies on the guitar without the aura or the or the weight of the album anymore. When you do the album I think this goes for everybody who makes an album. You make the album, you listen to the album, you check the album, you prepare yourself for the promotion, and the day it's released, it becomes somebody else's album, it becomes the public's, and your next thought is, what's our next album going to be? What's the next record? So I always live in hope of the next album. And it's like it's like the Sprout, Sprout fans, like you say, self saying today, earlier on, is there any any new records being made it's it's as big a thrill for me that i'm always looking for the next one so i'm proud of every album i've done every song i've done and i've, I've you know when i when i hear them i'm thrilled to bits and well up inside with pride yeah but it's it's i don't, I don't want to be haunted by it i don't want to be become static 
Yes, yeah, so I think Paddy feels that weight as well, and that's why he's released so Probably. few records because it's <laughs> pleasurable. Part is the writing and creation. Yeah, the next day, waking up the next day and coming up with something that you haven't already written. Yeah, I think that's always a thrill. Yeah, no, I get that. The co- yeah, great. The chords to all those songs are as as beautifully relevant as the you know the 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 lyrical content is is relevant. But the chords are just absolutely divine to play, and it's all I've known. I've played them since I was since I was seven. That is the end of the interview. So massive thanks to Thomas and Martin and Wendy. What a pleasure to speak to Wendy Smith. That, that was a real surprise. Sometimes, actually always doing these interviews, at some point while I'm doing them, I'm thinking cool i'm talking to this person but but in this instance wow i mean what a privilege to be the one that gets to listen to these guys talk about this album and i should say thanks to paddy as well for writing the songs i think he's he's simply to me the best songwriter of the past 40 years and hopefully one day we'll get more music i mean peter gabriel's got an album coming out so miracles do happen Uh, anyone in the uk following 80s pop we'll, we'll know about previous brand but elsewhere in America I know there are fans in America but a lot of people may not know the songs as well and I envy you discovering the Prefab Sprite back catalogue all the albums are good but those Thomas Dolby related ones Stephen McQueen from Langley Park to Memphis and Jordan the Comeback are they're as good as pop music gets so anyway you can follow them all on Twitter at Thomas Dolby capital T capital D at Wendy Finn and Max or lowercase and Martin at Culpa Felix C-U-L-P-A-F-E-L-I-K-S capital C capital F check out thomasdolby.com and felixculpa.com and also Thomas's autobiography The Speed of Sound is a great read some excellent sprout content among it but there's lots of lots of great interesting stuff on there but a very entertaining read I really enjoyed reading it uh, at Prefile Sprout on Twitter there is a great website formerly Sproutnet uh, called Sproutology a lot of great interviews uh, audio and written it's a great archive I've used it for years and it was really enjoyable revisiting it highly recommended again thanks to Robert Standard hope you enjoyed it thanks again and also listen to Andrew Mason many thanks if you'd like to contribute to the pod and keep those pesky paid as out uh, via PayPal atisography.gmail.com thanks to all those I have so far uh, so to end with Wendy mentioned during the chat, the song she was on that quoted from Desiras, uh, Winter Solstice by Simon, the poet Simon Armitage's group, L.Y.R. Safa Land Yacht Regatta. It's quite lovely, actually, this one. And no matter how many times I wrote it down, I could not spell solstice. It's one of those words that just escapes me. Try it now, dear listener. I guarantee 65% of you will get it wrong. Try and, try and spell it in your head. And you are, of course, smarter than the average listener, obviously. I mean, like, duh. Yeah. So enjoy this and remember... Whatever you do, no whoops or war cries. It's cold in the small hours, bolting the door against dark nights, scanning for miracles, panning for glimmers and signs. Knowing at best I'm the 10th or 11th in line, I know I'm not really your favourite person, but you're mine. Desire as a sylph-figured creature who changes her mind. 
I know I'm not really your favorite person, but you're mine. how it looks from the sidelines clutching at straws reaching for shadows and lifelines dredging the shallows for proof and clues in the half-light this is the news this is me living the half-light You've been dishing the dirt, but I'm selfless and kind. More like a brother or sister, not really your type. Then later I whisper, I need to be worshipped, not just liked. I need to be worshipped, not just liked. Cut to the part where the snowdrop revels in sunlight. Spare me the sympathy card with its chorus of dumb rhymes. Tear me apart with the love heart declaring, love is blind. I know I'm not really your favorite person, but you're mine. Desire is a self-figured creature who changes her mind. I know I'm not really your favorite person, I think we did pretty well keeping people out of the studio when we were recording, Thomas, don't you? Most were the days, eh? Yeah, we had, we had no interference, really. I remember, yeah, there'd be probably one one time in the whole of the recording sessions towards the end where somebody would turn up. Muff was always great. He's, he was there throughout our career, and he, he always had great logic. Yeah, he was, he was, I, had, I really admired what Muff Winwood was like with us. He'd, uh, he'd want to pull the hit out from you, but at the same time, he loved, he really loved what we did. And I even remember Bobby Columbia in, in, in LA with you, Thomas, when we were doing Jordan. He was like the American version of Muff Winwood and coming out to dinner and liking Jesse James and stuff like that. And they were, they were like exactly the same as each other in terms of their attitudes and what they're going for. I think we were really incredibly lucky with the people who supported us at Sony, CBS then and then Sony, because we had Terry Felgate and Rob Stringer. They were all kind of completely behind us alongside Muffin. Still, are. Still, Still are. are. Absolutely. And it's fantastic really to have that kind of support, you know, because it, record labels, you know, 
they're like juggernauts and um, you need them on your side. But what was different, I think, in those days was that there was this sense that when a band is great and their music is working, you let them get on with it. You let them create their magic and then you do what you can to to try and you know, market it and get it out there to the right audience. And, and I feel that sort of within a decade of Steve McQueen, that had given way to the sort of complete corporate attitude where, you know, the record company had to be fully involved right from the outset and manipulating you all along. And uh, that, I mean, it, it may still be like that for the very top artists who have already made somebody some money. None of us have made any money for anybody at that point. So it's amazing. We were given, you know, a good couple of months in a, in a great studio and we didn't have a lot of intervention. There was none. And uh, Muffled always, he would suggest things to us. So if we'd, after, a, after, but this was usually after a campaign. So if you'd done an album or if you'd done two albums or three albums, then he'd probably say to you, you'd kind of know that the next meeting you were going to have with them was where's the hit single. So you'd kind of prepare for this and you'd kind of, you'd know that it was coming. So you'd always have a repost waiting for him because he would be the same with you. He'd know what you were going to say. So he'd always have a repost back, but he was always fair and, and loved what we did. <laughs> and bye. You kind of, it was quite evident early on though that you were bringing space into the songs that we would have probably just rocked out in a bar. So, I mean, uh, we mentioned the the uh, instrumental bit in the in Bonnie there, and the actual chords were kind of throughout the song. It just so that's it throughout the song. But um, in the in the instrumental bit, when we played live, there'd just be a kind of a a bit where Paddy would vamp playing rhythm but playing something more like so that was that was all there was really but i i, I think mart also it's with thomas your production is also about what you don't do you know take removing things taking things away leaving more space yeah i think that you know the chords are very complex the harmonies are complex you were used to playing together as a, a as a live band we were and I think in the studio, it was as much about what can you leave out, what can you not yeah, do, to, as Thomas has just said, to, to kind of create the right tone and cast the song in the right light. And there have been two good cover versions of Bonnie, both by people called Tom Smith. Um, <laughs> and, not, and, they're not, and neither of those Tom Smiths are related to each other and neither of them are related to me. Um, but one is Tom Smith from the editors and the other is a brilliant um, up and coming artist Tom Smith from Sunderland and both have done really good cover versions of Bonnie All my silence and my strange respect chances and the same regret I always assumed it was the same version. Didn't I realize it was two ver Is there a Tom in your family that can record it and just make it through? I'm a, I'm a Tom. Maybe it's actually a secret amalgamation of Tom and me. 
<laughs> so, so look if there are any other tom smiths out there give us yeah. your versions of bonnie we'll put an, a compilation album together definitely get, get muff when we're down you know yeah, i don't hear a single one of the things about this record i think which 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 is which it's it's the mix of it is mike shipley you and mike shipley adding and removing and just making separating everything out mike shipley was a fantastic engineer and just I remember all the care you took in setting up the studio. And when we when we came to do the mix, they always, I mean, Thomas will attest to this, but the the guys would go into the new studio for for the mix and they'd take the last record that they'd worked on. And so for Steve McQueen, the last record that we'd worked on or that they'd worked on was Cars, um, Who's Gonna Drive You Home by The Cars. And I remember you spending a lot of time setting up the studio in order to to start the mix you took that record in and you played over the ns10s and then you played over all the other desks um all the other speakers and you'd be running it through the desks and seeing if there was anything within the desk that needed attenuating and things like that lots of care and and similarly when desire as was finished that became the track that you and mike took off to to play to to set up the studio for johnny mitchell's next album that you worked on so yeah it's it, mike had a lot mike was very involved in the mix wasn't he he was yeah I, when i think about the recording you know i don't i don't think about the mixing but you're, you're dead right i mean mike uh was an astonishing and she's no longer with us but he was an amazing engineer and um i i worked with him with uh matt langer on a couple of def leopard albums and um you know, he, 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 I think was really responsible for the sound. And I, I think again, the parts are so good on a track like this, that what you really need to do is just put each one in its own little spotlight, you know, where you pan it, how you EQ it, what sort of, you know, reverb effects you put in it. Um, and, and then again, you know, as Wendy said, just knowing when to zap things out. I mean, sometimes it's, you only need a lick or two of that strap going into the chorus or of the piano or whatever and and that's all you need to paint the picture and you also use those reverbs and those delays and the sound effects as sparingly and as sparsely as you you mentioned the actual instruments so if you did find a reverb that worked it would be a reverb that worked for three seconds or for half a second and you, you spent a lot of effort making sure that it came and it went and it wasn't just there throughout because you'd used it at the beginning. We were going to use it throughout the whole of the album on one particular sound or whatever. There's a lot of that. It must have driven you lot nuts. <laughs> <laughs> it, I'll tell you when it, it was, I, can I just go on to Langley Park to Memphis? Can you remember how many machines we had linked up to each other? We had three 24-track multi-tracks linked up to each other, which meant that every ounce of reverb that was used we'd have to we'd need about 90 seconds of running before they all synced then you'd play it for half a second then you'd wind it back another 90 seconds to sync up listen to it and go on oh, let's do it again the good old days appetite <laughs> were you thinking about potential singles at this point in terms of this this could be a potential single no. Not for us. Our our attitude was we're not selling it to the record shops. This is a job that the label, they will come in and they will choose what the single will be. 
or which singles they are and and good good luck to it because I could never choose a single to set me you know save me life neither could I don't think any of us could we might later on we might have thought well this could be a single by Sangmi Park to Memphis perhaps we were thinking that King of Rock and Roll and um, Cars and Girls could be singles but I think at this point it was anybody's guess and if we're not going into this you know some poor sod's got to go into the HMV every Monday or Tuesday and say, we want you to take this in here. And if they're not into it, then it's it's dead. So it's got to be something that the salesperson can pitch and wants to pitch and can, you know, can can really sell them as a, as a piece of product. And we were useless at that. And we would never have, yeah, I could never see the point in trying to do, choose a single. We might have our favourites. But, what about what about you, Thomas? Because obviously you were having hit singles at this time. So did you did you have that kind of antenna of thinking, yeah, this this has hit potential? Uh, you know, I thought there are five or six tracks on the album that could that could easily be singles. And I mean, I think the thing about singles is that the default formula is the most catchy, approachable, positive, up tempo song. You know, is the most likely to get played on Radio One on the A list, and most <laughs> likely to. Top of the pops and so on. That was that was the default thinking in those days, because that sort of pop mainstream was very much the way into chart success, and it was the only way in, pretty much. But the annoying thing was that every now and then something would buck that formula in the UK charts, and something like you know Shipbuilding would make it to number one, or, or Ghost Town, or, or or Vienna, you know, which didn't meet all of those formulaic expectations. So playing for high stakes, if you're aiming for the bullseye, you would say, look, what's your best track? It doesn't matter what the tempo is or, or how often the hook comes. Just go with your best track because it would be such a triumph to get that on the radio and get that in the charts that it would really blow people's minds. So the only dilemma for me was not, you know, ooh, I don't know where the single is. It, it, it's, you know, do you go with the most obvious sort of poppy sounding songs or do you go with something that's just a great, song goodbye lucille number one apparently paddy wrote 10 versions of goodbye lucille he said in an interview well the, 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 any of the other versions yeah there were other songs called that there, there weren't other versions there were different songs but they were all called goodbye lucille up to eight three or four of them were piano and um, and mark wasn't walk on once goodbye lucille was that was goodbye, the, goodbye lucille yeah which was a b-side of the, the, the devil has all the best tunes, I think. Yeah, that's right. Walk on, stroll on, walk on, stroll on, walk on, stroll on, walk on, stroll on. So, but they were all called Goodbye Lucille originally. Yeah. And number one, number two, number three, number four. Yeah. So one of them would have had the lines in it, back to my garage, to my Weber carbs, I must attend to my servo. There's a problem I must write without two warning lights. How do I hope to reverse all? So that was one of the lines from <laughs> one of them. That I don't. I can't remember the tune. I just remember those lyrics. Yeah. It takes me back to the garage. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Fab Sprout, and here I come, there I am. Yes, and uh, when love breaks down, and look, here from the band we have Martin 
and Wendy. Hello, welcome. Oh. Sorry it's so early, but not to worry. Let's have some questions on the card, shall we? Wendy, you go first. Right. Are three of you enough on stage? Yes. Do you need more? Do you have more people backing you when you yes, go on stage? We do have How many? More. We have two more people. We have a keyboard player called Michael Graves, and we have a drummer, Neil Conti. Have I got the right side here? Who do you want to win Wimbledon? What? Sorry, sorry, do you like sprouts anywhere? There's two questions on here, confusing. Yeah, I can't afford it. Early in the morning. No, no, I want to save this one, it must be unique. Who do I want to win Wimbledon? I haven't a clue. Do I like no, sprouts anywhere? Years old, that is. Leave Wimbledon out of it. What's the I other question? I don't like sprouts. I can't that's stand question them. That's a question. No. I do. You do like, like sprouts. Like yeah. Yeah. If you don't cook them too much, they're very nice. I can't stand them. You can't stand them. No, but you don't notice that your name is sprout now, do you? It sort of seems like a different word to you. Yeah. Another question. What do you argue about? We never argue. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> There's no way out of that one. What do, you, what do you argue about, then? What do we argue about? Who's wearing whose socks today, I think. Really? <laughs> if you take, then put back good. If you steal, be Robin Hood. Audio, audio commentary. Music. Yeah, I have a one, two second gap between each bit, otherwise it's hard to edit. Thomas. Thomas Dobbley. Thomas Dobbley. You don't do Eddie Metlin Dobbley, you know? I mean, in what? What?